0: This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast today is Jungian analyst, author, and lecturer, Jay Gary Sparks. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, a Master of Divinity and Master of Arts in Pastoral Counseling from the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California, and a Diploma in Analytical Psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute, Zurich, where his thesis advisor was Jung's closest student and collaborator, Marie-Louise von Franz, and his training analysts included Jung's grandson, Dieter Baumann, and Jung's close friend and confidant, C.A. Meyer. Mr. Sparks has been a lecturer and seminar presenter at the C.G. Jung Foundation of Ontario, Canada, and a teacher for the Analyst Training Program at the Research and Training Center for Depth Psychology, according to C.G. Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz, in Zurich. In January of this year, he presented Jung and Pauli, the Living Spirit in Matter, to the Cambridge Jungian Circle, and has made that video available here. He is now teaching An Introduction to Jung's Red Book, online every Tuesday in June through the Jung Center, Houston. Currently, he is in private practice in Indianapolis, Indiana, where he also conducts a variety of study groups. He is the author of At the Heart of Matter, Synchronicity and Jung's Spiritual Testament, and Valley of Diamonds, Adventures in Number and Time with Marie-Louise von Franz. He is the editor of Jungian analyst Dr. Edward F. Edinger's book, Ego and Self, The Old Testament Prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, and co-editor with Daryl Sharp of Edinger's Science of the Soul, a Jungian Perspective. His new book, Carl Jung and Arnold Toynbee, The Social Meaning of Inner Work, was published late last year by Inner City Books and is the subject of our talk today. This interview is being recorded on Friday, June 15th, 2018, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Gary.
1: Hello, Laura. How are you?
0: Um, great. Thanks so much for coming back to the podcast. My pleasure. To talk about your new book, I just want to tell people you were my second guest of the podcast ever back in 2000. And that was
1: fun. You were here and we... Um... We talked and talked and talked and talked. We
0: sure did. That was a great day. You took
1: some wacky pictures of me.
0: (laughs) I was looking at those. (laughs) I was looking at those and the video that, do you remember the video? I remember that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember.
0: Yeah. I'll provide a link to that on your podcast page. And um, you had the the action figures of Jung and Freud.
1: Yes, you know, they were they were chatting it up together and we, we caught them red-handed.
0: <laughs> you showed us your book collection.
1: Yes, in, I got every inner city title sitting right by my consulting chair.
0: Yes, I remember that. That's in the video too. And then the story of how you met Daryl Sharp.
1: Right, right. How he saved my life.
0: How he saved your life. I think that I, I titled that video Hitchhiking, Hitchhiking Through Kusnacht. Yeah,
1: exactly right.
0: That was almost three years ago.
1: That's hard to imagine. So yeah.
0: I know, I know. And this is the 35th episode of the podcast.
1: Wow. wow. Well, good for you for for giving this wonderful resource to the Jungian community.
0: Well, thank you so much for being part of it. I thought I was going to be doing one episode a week. I mean, little did I know.
1: It's a lot of work.
0: It It is more than I ever thought. And this material is difficult, And not always very popular.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But I have received a tremendous amount of feedback from people that just thanking me, and I'd like to pass that along to my guests, it's really Mm -hmm. them, for talking and making this available, you know, for free.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful resource. Wonderful, wonderful resource.
0: Not asking for money or subscribers it's yeah and you taught me this Gary you said just put it out there that that you didn't tell me to do that that's what you do with your material and that inspired me to do the same so. well you're
1: giving this uh, a labor of love
0: as do you um your website jgsparks.net is like I've said a treasure trove of of information that's you have pdf files you have audio files you do these discussion groups in your home would you, you want to tell us a little bit about those
1: sure well i've got two going at the moment um one we're we're going through jung's ion and i mean sometimes we spend 2 hours on a sentence yeah uh, we're we're crawling our way through it uh that group has been meeting i think for about 25 years. Same group of aficionados. Uh, we don't give any CEUs. Uh, we're like family. We, um, we we just really want to understand Jung's primary works. The other one I'm doing is uh, Rivka Sheriff Kluger's, uh, I think it's called The Archetypal Significance of Gilgamesh. Where if we talk about the Red Book today, we'll get into Gilgamesh. Um, uh, that's I think the the Ion group we have about six or seven and in the um, Gilgamesh about eight um, we all like each other we all speak freely and it's it, for me it, it's a fantastic experience to uh, in a way have fun make some money and uh, learn with folks who are really serious about understanding you
0: mm-hmm. and they are, discussion groups or are they lectures and then oh no they're
1: discussion they're discussion groups mm-hmm. um, you know I, I sort of chair it you might say uh, I'll take a passage uh, I'll try to go through the book and and pick out what I think are the let's say with uh, Gilgamesh because it, it it's a little less dense pick out the passages that are, uh, have the most meat in them. I throw them out, and I'll try to tell them what I think it means, and then they'll tell tell each other how they feel about it, what it means to them. So it's it's absolutely a back and forth. And sometimes I throw down a sentence. I like sit there, and then they discuss that sentence for an hour. And that's more with I am because it is so densely packed. Each sentence is is like a world. But no, no, it's very much a back and forth.
0: And you mentioned ION, which is, in Jung's Collected Works, is it volume
1: 9-2? 9-2, uh, yes.
0: Yeah. And you cover that a lot in your new book. Yes. Carl Jung and Arnold Toynbee, The Social Meaning of Inner Work. And when I visited you in Indianapolis back in 2015 to record episode two, you had told me back then about this book, that you were working on this book. And you said in the book that it was 10 years in the making.
1: Well, it all started with a dream, as I think any good Jungian creative work does. And the dream was very simple. Uh-huh. Yes, I should spend the rest of my life working on two themes. One theme was the relationship of, of images to history, and the other theme was the relationship of images to science. Coinc- quote, coincidentally, a colleague of mine was visiting from Switzerland, and he said, oh, I've been reading this wonderful book. I think you'd like it. And Toynbee has a, a one-volume um, abridgment of those 12 volumes of his with lots of pictures, it's really a, a coffee table book. And he said, why don't you read that? So actually at that time you couldn't get it on Amazon. I think I had to order it from England or something. And I read that book and I thought, oh my God, this is what I'm looking for. And then um, I said, well, I probably should read all 12 volumes. Before I did that, there is a two volume abridgment, which uh, actually Toynbee uh, preferred. And I read that and I said, still, I got to read these. I got to read all 12 Mm lambs. So I got a paperback volume for a set for, you know, a reasonable amount of money, under $100. And, uh, but it was falling apart. And I thought to myself, you know, if I'm really going to work on this stuff, because I began to see how deeply connected Toynbee's point of view was and Jung's point of view was. Mm -hmm. I said, I got to get myself a really good hardback edition of these uh, twelve volumes. So I looked on the web, and they were, you know, three thousand dollars, four thousand right, right. dollars, thirty-five hundred dollars, and I came across one for three hundred and fifty dollars. And I thought, you know, this has got to be somewhere in in the middle of nowhere in some foreign country. Mm-hmm. And and I looked at the phone number, and it was the same digits that could have been in Erica, you know, sometimes these international numbers, they got a bunch of prefixes for the country. Right, right. Oh, that, that must be prefixes for, I don't know what, some, some country in the middle of nowhere. Well, you know, where's the going to happen? is going to charge me $10 for a wrong number. I'll give him a call. So I punched in the number. And this guy answers speaking English. And I said, you know, is, is this the right bookshop that, that's selling the Toynbee volumes for $350? He said, yep. And I said, well, and I, I'd like to buy them. Where are you?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He, he was at a bookshop two blocks from my house. No way. Yeah. So I went over there. Oh, and, that's great. And I walked in, and it was a used bookshop. I'd been by but I never walked into. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Yeah, I'm the guy who, who called about the Toynbee books." And he goes, "Are you really going to read those things?" Mm. I said, "Yes, I'm going to read those things." He said, <laughs> I'll, "I'll give them I'll give them to you for 250." Wow. I said, I said, "Sold." So, I figured that was a nod from the universe, and yeah. that's when I really got serious about reading the guy.
0: I'm trying to remember you said that you know, you were working on the book and I think that I didn't know if you were really going to get it done and get it published. Neither did I.
1: Really. Um, what I, I mean, it's 12 volumes and I'm not a historian, you know. Mm-hmm. And just to digest that amount of material was so massive. See, my you read it. You read world. all of it. Read every damn one of them. Wow. And um, then to um, learn it, I gave a course in it.
0: That's great.
1: One of these groups I was telling you about.
0: If you would, tell us very briefly, who was Arnold Toynbee?
1: Toynbee was a British historian. He would have been about, I'd say, 10 to 15 years younger than Jung. Mm -hmm. Um, Oxford grad, worked in what we would call a sort of think tank for parliament doing a survey of world events each year for parliament members. And one day was walking down the street, as far as I can see, kind of close to the legendary apartment of Sherlock Holmes uh, in London. And he, he got, stopped in his tracks by a vision. And the vision was he saw all of history as one continuous stream. Mm -hmm. And it shook him to the core. Because I think even now, but certainly more in... in, So this would have been, what, 19... Mm. uh, Probably before World War I. um, History was broken up. Well, you had European history, you know, you had... American history, you had German history, Italian history, and he realized that is an error, and and what he wanted to do is write a history of the world. Mm -hmm. What he recognized pretty soon is if you look at the history of the world in a broad perspective, there are repetitive patterns, and those patterns consist of the rise of civilizations and the fall of civilizations. And so he set out to make a comparative study of the rise and fall of, I forget the exact number, around 30, 32 civilizations from, you know, Mayan to Minoan to uh, Etruscan to very early up to today. And he came up with an astonishing, in his mind, an astonishing parallel between the way civilizations rose and the way they fell. hmm so that's, that is the substance of those 12 volumes.
0: And Toynbee and Jung never met. No. They didn't know each other. You are the but, one who saw the connection.
1: As far as I know, no one else has pointed it up yet uh, so far. There, there may be, but if they have, I don't know it. So
0: what did you see?
1: The link, which is astounding mm-hmm. for a historian, And in a way, you could say astounding for a psychologist. Toynbee tried to show it is not inevitable that civilizations decline. The difference isn't the outer conditions that would either make or break the civilization. The difference is the leadership that would address or not address the problem. So you might say, well, one one analysis might be, well, it was a shortage of food, or well, it was a climate change, or whatever, you know. And he would say, nope, it's the reaction of the leadership to those outer contingencies. And what moves the leadership is the creative personality. Somebody speaks the truth and orients the civilization to what it has to do. So he puts the rise and fall of civilization on the shoulders of the creative personality. Well, that's straight out of Jung. Mm-hmm. Jung's, uh, Jung looked at how our inner work, when it goes to a depth sufficient to the demands that our soul is putting on us, when that work goes that deep. Inevitably, it brings the individual back out to the society to address the society with the lessons learned from the inner journey. Mm. So both men put the creative individual at the fulcrum of social change. Uh, you could say that Jung looked at society from the point of view of the individual. Where Toynbee looked at the individual from the point of view of society, mm-hmm. what does the individual do for society? And and Jung looked at the individual, what is the individual's journey doing that it can address the society? Mm-hmm. So they're very in in the inception of their work, they're very very close.
0: And they both lived during the same era.
1: Yeah. And Jung, certainly, you know, if we talk about the Red Book, that is clearly a response to World War One. Yeah. And, and Tony B. says flat out, which is on the uh, epigram of my book, um, that he wrote this book in response to the criminality of the war. How can we stop these genocidal, fratricidal conflicts? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Half of his classmates at Oxford were killed in the war
2: hmm
1: and that broke his heart
0: well w- would you tell us a little bit about the parallels then um well that's not a really good question i'm trying to s- encapsulate because you, know, you spend 10 years on a book and here yeah. we're going to talk about it for an hour and it's so I, I highly encourage everybody to get the book it's available on amazon and if you don't like purchasing books on Amazon, you can go straight to Inner City Books. All the links will be on, on this episode page at speakingofjung.com. You can purchase the book directly from the publisher, Inner City Books, which is Daryl Sharp's publishing company in Toronto. And it's also available as an ebook. I'm trying to ask you how you can kind of encapsulate all of the work that you put into this book in you know a short amount of time. Specifically though, what is relevant for us today? How this can apply to what we're seeing here, specifically in the United States, but globally too. The genius work of these two men, and what can we take from that?
1: Thank you, that's a very, very rich question. Um, well, let's start with Tony B.
2: Okay.
1: What he does in about half of his book, half of those volumes. Mm -hmm. He kind of lays out a process, and and you might say the ingredients or the facets of what a process looks like in somebody who is that creative person who's going to make a difference in the civilization. And so he talks at length about uh, things like what he calls withdrawal and return. An individual who is going to make a difference has to withdraw from the world. Yeah. And that's Jung's Red Book, for example. Yeah, yeah. And, and look at themselves and find out what is making them tick rightly and wrongly. And then return back to the world and articulate it. That's, he spends quite a bit of time talking about what, what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing he stresses is that that's an ordeal. This is not follow your bliss. This is follow your ordeal. That it is, and it can push people to the absolute limits of their endurance. And what helps me, I think, as an analyst here, is people think if they have a problem, oh, there's something wrong with me, rather than maybe I'm being tapped with my version of what's wrong with the society. And actually, this is not that there's something wrong with me, there is something right with me trying to be born.
0: I really like what you said because that's how and why Jungian analysis saved me and why Jungian analysis resonated with me as opposed to all the other therapies out there that I tried before, which to me focused on finding out what was wrong with me and fixing it so that I would fit in.
1: Yep, yep. This, <laughs> yep. yeah yeah this is anti-fitting dysfunctional
0: society
1: no yeah so i I gotta tell people, look, yeah, you, know, you don't fit in good, right don't and but you're now taking a terrific responsibility on your yes. shoulders because you've got to find out what's right within you that's seeking birth, and when that's born, you've got to articulate it and get ready for a battle,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So withdrawal and return is, is a big part of it, um, what he calls the transfer of the field of action. Um, this is a little more complicated. Let me see if I can put it uh, in, with some clarity. He, he is not just interested in fixing social problems as the litmus test to whether a society grows or doesn't grow. His critique is concerned with, are there people working on the society's problem in themselves? Is, Is there a transfer of the field of action, that's his language, from the outside to the inside, where I begin to work on what's wrong out there inside myself? If that happens, there's hope. If problems are simply fixed, it's a temporary solution. And the solution that is enacted will itself be a future problem. That genuine change has to begin on the inside. Well, that's scary when you look at the level of consciousness of most politicians. Uh, It's very scary. I don't see any of them saying, you know, what's the... What's the minority population in me? What's the police brutality in me? What's the, you know, I could go on and on.
0: Yes. You and get, and you, I you get I, the idea. I do. And I, I want to say that yesterday, you know, usually on Twitter, and I mentioned Twitter because that is just the most comfortable for me. Facebook is another story. So I posted something on Twitter. What I was going to say is that when I get ready for a guest, to interview a guest for this podcast, I typically will quote their material as I read it. And like you had mentioned to me, I think that um, you you had mentioned at the beginning here that in order to understand or to get through those Toynbee volumes, you taught it, right? Yes. Well, I'm not teaching, but I'm sharing what I'm reading while I'm reading it on Twitter, and every once in a while, I will write something myself that's that's not a quote. And um, I I tweeted something yesterday about just being. I my Twitter timeline and my Facebook timeline are filled with people criticizing politicians pointing out hypocrisy and people that are you know, well educated and well established are just spewing all this vitriol about this one and that one. And I'm always, I'm still to this day, surprised to see that. And I don't follow politics very closely. And I am not understanding why we are not looking at ourselves instead, I mean, to, to publicly shame or humiliate or to point out somebody's inadequacies or hypocrisies, I just find that odd. And I I don't know, maybe it's because I've had so much Jungian analysis that, I mean, it's embarrassing when I see that I think, wait a minute. We need to look at ourselves. How, yeah. what, what is What is the hook here? What is the trigger? What's going on in me? Instead, there's just all this finger pointing. And would you say a little bit about that?
1: Well, uh, I'm just looking here I, where I put that file. There's a beautiful interview out that was part of a online conference uh, run by Sounds True. Mm-hmm. I think it was a week or two ago, and there was a fantastic interview. The woman is very active in empowering women, particularly in world's uh, parts of the world where there's been, you know, huge, huge r- r- violence, um, mm-hmm. ISIS violence, or or tribal fighting violence, whether it's just rape and slaughter and her story is she was iraqi and i believe she said her dad was a pilot to saddam hussein and she grew up in terror uh you might think well that would give that family some security no you know uncle uncles would disappear neighbors would disappear you never knew if you would be next so she came to the states her mom got her out of iraq uh, i guess before saddam hussein was killed and she married a guy here who raped her it's a horrible marriage that she got out of that and she spent um, a long time recovering from that uh, trauma the, the conference was on trauma the interviewer said to her what's what's the difference between somebody who who heals from trauma and doesn't heal from trauma and the woman said well i don't know about others but i can tell you in my case first of all there's one level of rage against the perpetrator that itself is a necessary step, but it doesn't heal. The healing step for me was when I began to see there was a tyrant in myself. And I went back to Iraq, and I met the nurse who raised me. And I asked her frankly what she thought of me, and the nurse said, I hated you. You were a horrible child. You were horrible to me. And the woman said that that second part of healing is when we can see we are doing to others what has been done to us. Yeah. And I think with much of what we hear in the news, uh, she refers to Me Too and other movements that are necessarily rageful against the damage but her point is it won't be healed until we also see we are the perpetrators as well as the victims. Yes. That is a, that's a huge step. Now, when we withdraw the projection, now this word projection is very complicated because people think, well, when you say withdraw the projection, that the person you're projecting on doesn't have those qualities. They may very well have those qualities, but so do you. Personally, I I support the rage Mm -hmm. against, you know, a corrupt, patriarchal power structure. Now the question is whether we can begin seeing that corruption lives in us as well.
0: Yeah, and um, I just don't see the point anymore of constantly pointing it out because that's all I tend to see online is, and and here when you know i have dinners with people and visitors and and i was just at a conference a couple of weeks ago here in chicago and met people i had you know met some new people i didn't know and i just see the pointing it out and not the reflection and so my frustration or my fear is that this is reaching a fever pitch and we're not getting the message that this is about us and not in bringing these people down because that's another thing I'm seeing is that's what's being called for and wanted is let's bring these people down. Well, is that really the solution? Is that really necessary?
1: I think it is. I think the way she puts it out anyway, um, it's a two-level process, and she uses that language exactly. Um, I, I think the rage, in addition to the harm that's been done inside, is also saying, separate me from that pattern. And until the pattern has been separated from, that rage will remain. And I think we have to live with that, help people understand it, and help them understand how to get out of the very orbit they walked into where this horrible stuff happened to them. And and until that is completed, you really can't talk about the inner issue. But once that is Completed and the rage has fulfilled its purpose. Then I think you can go inside.
0: Yeah, I think you were talking about this woman and and what had been done to her. I'm sorry, I was referring to the people that I was mentioning, um, talking about politics and you know politicians. And so yes, I I completely agree with what you're saying. I'm just wondering um, based on Jung and Toynbee. And the material that you connected between the two of them, how we can apply that to our situation today. Because you know that the world is in a very, um, I, I think, you know, when I was in Zurich in 2015, and I spoke with Murray Stein, he talked about things being this sort of tinderbox situation. Yeah. Yeah. And... That was a while ago, and so I think things have only gotten worse since then.
1: Oh God, yes.
0: Right. So, where? Let's see. Where were we? How do we well, get back on track? Why do we,
1: how do we understand the general complaints uh, that we're hearing? I, I, <laughs> I have to say, I'm one of them. Uh, one of the complainers. I, I think it's important to allow those emotions their place, then to stop and say, where am I in this? What, you know, what's, where is the distorted power structure in my own life? But you can't do that as long as you are still caught in some quiet seduction by the power structure. Mm-hmm. So that's what she said, I wish I could get her name, I thought I'd send her, I did send her an email, but I think I sent it to her on, uh, on her website, and I thought I bookmarked it, but I can't find it. Um, that that was her approach, that it, it's two layers, there's layer one which is the rage, and and layer two which is the insight, and both are important.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I was wondering if you would, I wanted to get back on track with the book, yeah. and I, I was asking you about who Toynbee was. Yeah. And then the parallels that you saw between Toynbee and Jung. So since we don't have like hours and hours to talk, how yeah. we can bring that back to you know, what you outlined in the book.
1: Yeah, let's go back to that. The, um, let me give you a background first. Um, Toynbee thinks there are three phases of a civilization's life, um, as it has been at least. Growth, then a time of troubles, which is where we are now. And in a time of troubles, it can either be that it's the beginning of the end, or it's the beginning of a change to return to growth, and then decline. And what I think is relevant for us now is we are in a time of troubles. We don't know whether we're going to make it or not. It, when I look around, I certainly think not. I mean, mm-hmm. look at my city, at God. We're graduating kids from high school who, who, who literally cannot read and write.
2: Yeah.
1: Who can't add nine and four? I know that because a friend of mine teaches remedial math and English at one of the one of the um, tech schools, and 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 they're getting kids who cannot read. Mm-hmm. So. Our right river, river, if you fall in it, you practically need a tetanus shot. Um, I could go on and on. There are huge problems that are not being addressed. And, and, and Tom B is saying, if you don't address them, what happens is somewhere there is another culture that is addressing them, and sooner or later they're going to overtake you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So as far as the individual work in that period uh, and as far as Jungian psychology goes, what we try to see is can we locate in the individual's problem the microcosm of a macrocosm out there?
2: Yeah.
1: And then help them, uh, help ourselves, help help my analysands to recognize what the problem they are dealing with is also what we are dealing with in our time, and is it desirable possible for them to in time begin to address these issues socially for example i'm working with a woman uh, who's worked hard on on her mothering issues the mothering she didn't get the mothering that she did wish she thought she could have done better mm-hmm. and she's getting clear on that now she's starting to open up uh, groups for young women to come and talk about their issues so that inner journey has turned in, will be turning into an outer activity to help other women deal with the same issues she's been dealing with. So that, that's a very simple example of, of what I think Jungian psychology can offer, which is this um, looking at our microcosm, seeing its relationship to the macrocosm when we understand it, taking it back out to the world. Now that's that is only useful if the society listens. What if you take something back out and there's nobody to listen to what you've got right, to say? Right. And I think we're getting very scarily close to that point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You look at what we've uh, look at what Jungian psychology has become, sort of a bourgeois pabulum that is way far from what Jung ever uh, envisioned. And So the other issue is, does the situation change in a period of collapse? This is the other half of Toynbee's work. And yes, it does. And what he does for the next six volumes, well, no, it's not quite right. The next, uh, probably up until about volume uh, seven or so, um, how a disintegrating society works on our soul destructively and he lists uh, i think uh, 12 behavioral patterns that a disintegrating society can impose on an individual and so what's so useful for us there is if we're seeing somebody and often we're talking to somebody who parents don't sound so bad what are they having so much trouble for Mm -hmm. but they are having trouble because they are sensitive enough to the destructive effects of a society based on lies and thugs on their soul and so it alerts us to how we can intercede to mitigate the poisonous effect of a uh, time of troubles you might say and all of that then being If we become aware of these dynamics, and if enough people become aware of these dynamics, can we reverse the inertia toward disintegration? That's a very brief overview, but I think that's pretty accurate.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, how do we do that?
1: Well, as far as I'm concerned, you know, as an analyst, Mm -hmm. uh, working with my people, and of course, at a certain at, at beginning, nobody wants to hear this. Right. They just want to get they just want to get rid of their misery, and I can't blame them. But in time, with certain folks, once their problem is solved, they're still curious. They're still hungry for something, and I think this is what they're hungry for. How and where do I fit in? How is what I've just been through? part of my role as a citizen. And what now can I begin doing out there to express to others what I've learned on the inside?
0: I'd like you to talk a little bit about working at depth, because that is something that I I personally get criticized for a lot. And I don't know if, if it's because I've been at this for so long. I... You know, I was in analysis for a long, long time. And I've been reading Jung and the work of Jungian analysts for a long, long time. But I think it's because I didn't get any answers or satisfaction from what I was reading and the the other kinds of work I was doing all before this. And so I've I'm a strong proponent of this work and I, I'm not seeing clearly. I'm not, I seem to have lost some of the compassion for not doing the work. Um, I think because it was so difficult for me to get into because when I first started, I just sort of dabbled and came in and out and would always come back to this kind of work. Not everybody wants to do it. And it's not for everybody. So we're just speaking to the people who are interested in it and do want to do it. But we have to live in a world with people that aren't looking at themselves, that are just kind of blaming everybody else and everything else for what ails them. So how do we deal with that?
1: Well, I don't think, you know, it's the old corny proverb, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make a difference to somebody who doesn't want to have a difference made to them. It is frustrating to have seen something that makes a huge difference in one's life and want to share it. And to look around and see nobody wants it. So I think that actually is something Toynbee addresses. In the period of the time of troubles, people simply are not interested in solving problems. And if that continues, it's bad news for the civilization. So I don't think we can do anything except articulate our truth and see who shows up. Yeah. That's what I've come to. And I'm surprised people do show up. Right. It's yeah, yeah. a bit of Wu weed, you know that term? How do you spell that? W-U-Dash-W-E-I. Wu dash Wei, I guess it's pronounced. It's Chinese. It means actively not doing. I love that term. It's actively attending to what is going on inside without expectation from the outside and then watching what comes in from the outside.
0: You know what this reminds me of is when I first started the podcast, not a lot of people knew about it. It was, look, Jung is not for the masses I keep saying that so not everybody's familiar with Jung and the more and more people I meet and I mention my podcast they don't know who Jung is and I'm always surprised by that I don't know why I'm surprised by that but I am I get defensive about Jung because of his enormous body of work that I do not pretend that I've read all of and Another thing I keep mentioning is, from what I understand, most of what he had written in his lifetime, and he wrote for what 60 years, years—yeah, has not even been published yet. A lot hasn't, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know that any of us fully understand the enormity of his body. I don't know how he did it. I think he had a lot of support, and he had a a tremendous
2: mind.
1: Tremendous, he must have been. Uh, I like what Joseph Henderson said in, you know, that Remembering Jung series. You ever yes. seen any of those? Oh, yeah. Hen- Henderson says, Jung uh, was a man who, in theory, shouldn't have existed, mm. but he did.
0: Yeah. And, you know, another thing is that, and I love hearing your opinion on things because of how how devoted you are to this work and the true Jung, that people, another, another criticism that comes up is, well, you're worshiping this man. Oh yes. <laughs> right. So how oh, do you respond that. to that? I, I just heard, you...
1: Oh, I, I swore like, like crazy.
0: Oh, go ahead. You can do that here. There are <laughs> no, 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 no rules uh, here.
1: Um, actually I actually had an analizan come to me, a mm-hmm. uh, very likable guy who had moved here from another state and his previous anime, uh, It's funny, I said, I was almost going to say previous animus. Mm -hmm. This previous analyst said, you're over-identified with Jung. Mm. Well, I just started swearing I couldn't stop.
0: Okay, let's hear it.
1: Um, Let's hear the clean version then. (laughs) I'll give you the PG version. Okay. Um, Jungian psychology is not about Jung. That's my feeling.
2: Okay.
1: All Jung did was hold a mirror up to processes inside us. And in, in, in identified processes, nobody else in the modern age and in, in, in a modern framework has seen. Namely, that healing is a mystery. That the ego has its responsibilities, but there is a world way beyond that, which either helps us or doesn't help us. That there is a mystery to events that we don't understand, yet we have to take responsibility for them. Mm-hmm. That there's a link between our inner work and, and the outer world. Like, we, you know, if we get to the Red Book at all, uh, that's exactly what he says at the beginning of the Red Book. That's all Jung did was just saw what the heck is going on inside us. Yeah. And if I pay attention to that, that's an image, that's an indication of my health. I'm interested in what's going on inside me and inside the world. And for that, I get accused of being over-identified with Jung. It's a sickness on the part of whoever said that. that It is.
0: Yeah.
1: All Jung did was articulate the nature of the collective unconscious. Yes, I am personally interested in Jung, as I am interested in Mozart, Beethoven, Shostakovich, Stravinsky. Uh, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, I'm interested in creative people because that's a lot of what shows up in my practice, and they're different. So, in a way, yes, I'm interested in Jung as a creative personality. But as far as Jungian psychology goes, it is not about Jung. Jung just saw what is going on inside us without any blinders on. And yes, I'm going to devote myself to that because I see how that helps people.
0: Best two minutes of this podcast ever recorded right there, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. That was great, Gary. Thank you for Mm -hmm. sharing your thoughts
1: about that. You know, people come to me as a last resort. I'm usually the fifth or sixth therapist they've seen. And and they say to me, you know, if this hadn't worked, I would have killed myself. And the reason it works is because they are touched by this mystery that seizes them. I don't tell them how to think. I don't tell them what their parents did to them. I don't tell them what they should do. We just listen to that world that Jung has described, and they are—they are—they fall in love with themselves because they see the beauty inside themselves that Jung has see. And I sure as hell am not going to let anybody belittle that.
0: Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is why I devote all of this time, energy, money, and resources to this podcast is for statements like that. Thank you, Gary. My pleasure. So before we move on to the Red Book, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about Jung and Toynbee?
1: I would be happy if folks just have a very basic appreciation for how these two men looked at the role of the individual in in the growth of a society, and they saw a very similar link between focusing on our own problems and then extrapolating that to the society and then sharing that with the society on the one hand and what it's like which gets way more complicated than we need to get into here Mm -hmm. what happens to the individual when the pressures of a disintegrating society which we are now in Mm -hmm. or at least in time of troubles what's that do to the person when everything around them starts falling apart
0: Well, it's a great book. The subtitle is The Social Meaning of Inner Work, and I highly recommend it. Again, it's available on Amazon and at innercitybooks.net. And it's also available as an ebook just from Inner City Books, just from their website. So the other thing that we wanted to talk about today is the introduction to Jung's Red Book, which is a kind of a A live stream or attend in person class that you've been doing every Tuesday for the month of June. You've already done two, and there are two left. Yeah, And that's through the Jung Center in Houston, which is, I believe, the largest Jung Center in the country.
1: Yeah, I think it is. It's not a training place. It's simply a uh, venue for the discussion of Jung's work.
0: Mm -hmm. And so how is that working out? You're at home in Indianapolis and you are in front of your webcam and you're delivering your talk. And then they are streaming it there at the Jung Center in Houston. And there's also people that are there physically and people can join in via their website, right?
1: Yeah. They, they can't, um, speak back. Mm-hmm. They, they can listen and watch. And I've encouraged them if they have questions to email me. No one has yet, um, so it's either very boring or, <laughs> or they understand what I'm saying. One or the other. Um, it's odd. I, I don't know whether I like like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were talking about my um, the seminars I do here. What I love about them is the interchange. Yeah. Honestly, we will spend two hours talking about one or two or three yeah. sentences. And not in an intellectual dilettantish way, but you can see these people moved by the way Jung puts things, and it touches questions they've had, or it bears on images in their own dreams. And we don't get into you know psychological striptease, but but the personal reaction to the text forms the basis. I mean, sometimes I'll uh, I'll just say something and boom, you know, they're all for half an hour talking and I just sort of sit there and and listen. Uh, I I love giving people the chance to emotionally respond to what Jung has said Mm -hmm. and that you miss in an online seminar. Right. I don't know whether you can teach it online because yes, you can teach the ideas, but Jungian psychology is not about ideas. It's about experiences. Yes. Each of those sentences, Jung wrote because of an experience he had. And that's what I like to recreate. So it's good in a way. I've met some lovely people online. Um, I was there, I was there in person a couple of weeks ago and met some really lovely people. And they're they on the online seminars. But I certainly prefer the one on not one on one, but the in in-house teaching where you can talk and feel and argue and process.
0: Mm -hmm. I know that the title of this course is an introduction to Jung's Red Book, but I'm sure that you take off on certain things that are probably unique and you wouldn't get anywhere else. So just very briefly, if anybody doesn't know what Jung's Red Book is, it is an enormous I believe nine pound book. I think I have the stats here. I think I have the stats here somewhere, but you were telling me there's also a reader's edition, which I don't have because I tend to want to go straight to the source here. So this is a facsimile copy of the diary that Jung kept. And it's more than just a diary because it's also filled with his original artwork. So in this course that you teach you really get in there i'm sure to the material
1: I try to well mm-hmm. maybe just for folks who don't know about it a mm-hmm. couple of sentences um young split with freud in 1913 and he got disoriented freud really helped him i th- think it's safe to say get his feet on the ground methodologically or at least he had somebody nearby he could talk to who understood what he was saying well he lost that i mean they couldn't they couldn't see idei there's many many books written about why I, i always say it's very simple freud was an atheist and jung was not so there there was Jung. he was what uh not even 40 years old and began having visions of europe covered in blood he thought he was going crazy
2: Mm -hmm.
1: so that would have been 19 uh, this roughly started december 1913 so for a year until august 1914 he had uh, a series of visions of the destruction of europe and in August 1914, the war, World War I started, which, if you know, you've been to Zurich. Germany is about a 20-minute drive north of Zurich. Uh, uh, yeah, north of Zurich. And he realized what he was dreaming of was the war, that that war was being prepared in the unconscious. This is where he start, starts getting his, his idea of the collective unconscious. What, what was in his dreams wasn't just his own psychology, but it was the psychology of a, of a whole continent, really of a whole world. Um, then he realized, I don't know exactly how I thought it. How he thought it. This is how I imagine he thought it. Mm-hmm. Here I am in Switzerland. We're safe. What can I do? And what he realized he could do was go inside and continue watching his dreams and fantasies and I would say hypnagogic visions as the war progressed in France, Belgium, and Germany. He recorded the images, the story, the fantasy, call it what you will, that occurred to him over the period of World War I. He he wrote them down and calligraphied them, and he painted pictures to illustrate them. I think more or less that ended with the war, uh, 1918, maybe a little bit longer. And he says the book wasn't finished until 1928. But I understand that to mean what he began to do then was recopy everything and embellish it in this beautifully bound volume called The Red Book because the cover is red. So what it is, is an account of what Jung was going through inside during the war. And one way you could look at it is the war was being played out inside himself. Yeah. But it's more than that. Because what I tried to show in that Houston seminar, a fundamental pattern appears throughout the Red Book. And that is the death of the old, the emergence of a polarity, of a conflict, which is excruciating to endure. He endured it. It often is something that's felt inside, and it's often something that has its parallel outside. If you endure that conflict, it resolves. And what comes out, of that what the resolution is is another piece of the real you that's what jung calls the self so it's it's a story of how conflict carried after an old world has been destroyed can lead to genuine individuality then the rest of the book saying it you know kind of crudely but i don't think it's inaccurate to put it this way the rest of the book then begins with those self figures dictating to jung the point of view which later became jungian psychology it goes into just about anything you can imagine and ends up in the last part of the book called the scrutinies which actually not part of the red book but the editor rightly incorporated that in the book i feel because jung began that section when the Red book proper was finished, he began it the next day. So the editor takes it as the same thing. I think that's right. Um, a critique of Western religion and how the, our problem is essentially a religious one. Our religion is woefully inadequate. Actually, perhaps we could even say the part of the problem. So the book starts out with the, with the war imagery. Then Jung goes into a process which later he will call the evolution of the self, conflict, resolution in the third, and then the implications of all that for what his work would achieve. What is so unique about that is the conflict is something we have to attend to. The resolution is grace. We cannot make that. Happen. We can set the condition for it, for it, for its happening, but we don't make it happening. I don't know anyone else who talks like that. As a practical method, we are setting the stage to receive guidance from somewhere else. If you're religious, you'll call it God. Uh, give it the word. It doesn't matter what you call it. But there is a spontaneous visitation on the suffering individual that brings them into unity. And that's what healing is in Jungian psychology. That's what he discovered. And that's why I think the Red Book is so important. It shows how he came upon his psychology by noticing it happening in himself. And he spent the next 40 years writing about it.
0: That is a great encapsulation of what the Red Book is. Thank you, Gary. And Mm -hmm. the purpose of this podcast is, for me, To get Jungian analysts to talk about what the difference is between Jungian analysis and other forms of therapy. And when you were explaining what the Red Book is, you said, if you endure that conflict, it resolves. Right. And that sentence right there, to me, is something that I learned in analysis. I didn't hear anywhere else. And it is what makes it so difficult and what happens why it's not not that it's not why it's not for everybody but why people don't stay with it yeah and because you have to you have to endure that excruciating tension yeah of holding those opposites together holding them closer and closer and closer until they
1: resolve it's very humiliating. Yes. <laughs> Feeling like, you know, y- you can barely go on. Yeah. But if you can, what comes is remarkable.
0: Mm-hmm. Truly. Yes. So, wow. The Red Book is rich and deep and not easy to understand. And I don't think it's Again, I don't think it's for everybody. You explain it so well. I just want to say, because this came up a few weeks ago about the black books. Is it the case that Jung wrote in the black books? Because then you mentioned that he then transferred yeah. some of it to this yeah. large red leather bound book with this exquisite right. vellum paper. Right, right. That I think was lined that he that was lined in pencil that he hand lined, and then he wrote. I don't know, but in,
1: it, 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 I don't know how he did it because the the calligraphy is gorgeous.
0: Yeah, and he 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 wrote in calligraphy and then he painted. Right. Who has t- time to do that?
1: Well, and he did that while raising five kids and having a full time analytic practice. Right. And writing books. What I understood, uh, I never met her sadly, but. Um, a good friend of mine in Zurich was friends with his last surviving daughter, Lil, uh, was her nickname, I believe. And uh, she said, you know, in the evening, we'd sit around, the family would sit around together, sing songs, or you know, kids would be playing games or card games, and, and dad would be sitting there writing.
2: Hmm.
0: Those were the days.
1: Those were the days. So one of the
0: groups that you're conducting right now is on Gilgamesh? Yes. And would you tell us a little bit about him?
1: It's a wonderful story. Uh, let me just mention, remember I said that the two are resolved in a third, and that's the self. Yes. The, the the first image that appears as a resolution of Jung's conflict is Gilgamesh. So he's the first self symbol in the Red Book. And um, it, it's a little tricky because Jung calls him Izdabar, I-Z-D-U-B-A-R. And... Uh, I learned that Isdabar was the old way in Jung's time that uh, Middle Eastern scholars thought the pictograms would be pronounced. Mm -hmm. And they've changed their mind. And so it's the same God. It's just they realized that they were wrong in the pronunciation of the pictograms. And so now the word is pronounced Gilgamesh. But they're the same thing.
2: Okay.
1: What's so great about Gilgamesh, and I I think you will not miss the irony. He started out a tyrant and a jerk, repressing his populace. And what do you think the first thing he wanted to do in the story was? Build a wall. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? That (laughs) drama is 5,000 years old. Mm. The seeds of the Gungamish go back to Samaria, about 3,000 B.C., and then it slowly evolved through Assyria, Babylonia and um what happens in the story is unlike any other hero myth except one maybe that i know of he starts out strong and he ends up humane mm. usually heroes start out weak and they get strong but gilgamesh goes exactly the opposite way he ends the story broken and warm-hearted and human. So that is a remarkable parallel to Jung's own life. I think as a young guy, he was mm. he could be a handful. He was mm-hmm, brilliant, yeah. handsome, married one of the richest women in Switzerland, mm-hmm. had one of the mm-hmm. bea- most beautiful houses in in uh, the big city in, in Switzerland, Zurich, namely the banking center of Europe. Um, and over time, he became more human, caring, and related. So that Gilgamesh sort of foreshadowed Jung's own development. And uh, we don't have to go into all the details. Rivka Sheriff Kluger, Rivka Kluger, K L U G E R, wrote a book called The Archetypal Significance of Gilgamesh. It's very readable. She was a um, biblical scholar that uh, met Jung in Zurich, early on, I guess, one of the very first ones. And uh, so it's it's very well-written, very good Jungian psychology. And I just love that it deals with issues we're still dealing with today. How do we become human beings?
0: A model for us all there.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And and 5,000 years old.
0: Mm. What do you suppose is in those black books that Will be. Do you think there are any surprises in there?
1: No, I don't think so. No, if you if you um read the footnotes Mm -hmm. in the red book, which is another (laughs) another ordeal itself, yeah. Um, the author, the editor, Shamdazani, will say, you know, this text is pretty much what for the red from the black book, except here and here there's a difference. So I think it's more just seeing the raw stuff that the Red Book was made from. It's I'm not even sure I'll spend much time with it. I don't know. Maybe I will. Mm-hmm. It, more something for a Christmas coffee table, probably. But right. uh, I, I haven't seen it. But uh, I know my friend John Peck said that, yeah, it's coming out. But, you know, these things take – I mean, the work these guys put into this stuff is humongous. Oh, you know John Peck? Yeah. Yeah. He's a Zurich guy, Um, was there when I was there, and um, used to live in Connecticut uh, near my friend, and he would always attend my workshops. Very, very likable guy, and I mean, a genius as far as what he knows about Jung. I call him a a Jungian Encyclopedia Britannica. He just, he seems to know everything about, oh, and then this, in this volume page, 272, footnote 84, it's parallel to what was here in the Red Book, and so uh, uh, he and uh, the other two guys did a marvelous job working on that book
0: so just wrapping up on your work on Toynbee and Jung what sort of social commitment have you learned from Toynbee what what sort of responsibility do you see us having right now
1: the first place I noticed it Laura was in some of Jung's very early writings and it's in the uh, introduction of the red book. I don't. I was looking just looking f- through it a minute ago. and I don't remember where exactly. But he's referring to some uh, Schamdzani. is referring to some co- comments Jung made in a very early article. And I, I like the way Jung put it because it. it these are questions that are, have been put to me even recently. Uh, isn't Jungian psychology just you know navel gazing? Isn't it just solipsistic or you're just putting energy into yourself that would be better served serving social concerns. And there's a partial truth to that question, but also a a gross naivete for my tastes. And in that early essay, Jung mentions that, yes, when we do analytic work, we put tremendous amounts of energy into ourselves, watching our dreams, writing our dreams down. It, I mean, it means pulling back from normal social uh, relations. And isn't that selfish? No. Because in doing that, we acquire a debt. For the energy we have taken away from the world in our inner work, we have the debt of paying it back. Yeah. And By that I understand. In a way, what he is saying we picked up much later with Jung and Toynbee, and I'll come back to that in a second, but you have to do something with what you learned about yourself in the inner journey. Uh, I like Martin Buber putting it, the way he put it in um, his little slim volume monograph i think it's called the way of man i believe begin with yourself but don't end with yourself and so
0: well, what do you what, what did he mean by that
1: that you you begin looking inside and that's a luxury but it's a luxury we can't afford not to have okay but then when you have begun exploring who you are what you need to do is take the fruit you've learned about who you are what your gifts are what your meaning is what your destiny is who you're why you're here on the earth you have to take that back out to the world and do something for the good of humanity with it the problem is not that jungian psychology is solipsistic but I fear people are only getting half of an analysis. If you are involved in this work in a lackadaisical way, oh, you know, I can't make it this week because I play golf, or oh, I forgot to write down my dreams, or oh, I forgot my checkbook, and you don't commit to the process, and you only go in, you won't come out. Yeah. Yeah and people who are saying jungian psychology is not socially oriented have had half of an analysis they haven't seen when you go in and you meet the self the self you can see it in the red book again and again the self says now you go back out there and do this it there is a there is this uh shift in energy flow that happens spontaneously when you've gone in and discovered what you went in to discover, you can watch the dreams, take the individual, and push them back into the world. For example, I remember one woman working, reached some conclusions, and she dreamt she knocked down a wall in her uh, house and opened up her dining room to the public. Mm -hmm. Another couple that worked on their relationship, dreamt uh, she dreamt that uh, they had learned something about uh, growth and they took it down to the pub where they'd have a beer on Friday night and talk to the patrons in the bar about their growth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There, is, there is this pullback out. Now, I think that that is a very maybe simplistic way of putting it because later Jung, now in Toynbee and consort, I think we can say in a analysis where the dreams are taken seriously, you're doing two things at the same time. You're working on yourself and you're seeing where that self is going to take you out into the world. It may not be time to do it because mm. you need to get more solidity inside yourself. I remember I wanted to start lecturing, you know, about fifteen years ago and had a dream of Marion Woodman came to me. She said, Gary, you're not strong enough inside to do this. <laughs> so that inner cohesion has to be formed where you're not afraid of uh of saying what you have to say and and you know and dealing with the results which are sometimes positive and sometimes people hate your guts um later i think w- you know with this be young stuff i would see more it's a simultaneous process early on Jung put it first you do this then you do this but i, I like the way he said it because they're really I think we owe the world something. If we're spending all this time and money on ourselves, mm. we owe the world something. And you can see it in, in the dreams. Now, the difference is, if you're born to be a plumber, don't try to be a carpenter. If you're born a carpenter, don't try to be a plumber. You go back to the world not as a should, but, a, but as an is. You're not saying, oh, I should do this. I should be helpful. No. It's like an apple tree. It doesn't sit around and say, well, I should produce apples. It produces apples as part of its life. And that's, that's I think, what we come to in a fully lived, mature analytic process.
0: Yeah. And I don't know that there's that much of that out there in the popular culture. And that's another reason why this podcast is only about Jungian analysts and Jungian analysis, because there are some people out there talking about Jung, but you know they're talking about Jung's what? I don't know. They're reading a bit of Jung, and then talking about Jung. And I see. What do I want to say? I don't see much of it because I'm. I tried to stay with. Yeah, me too. The 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 classical Jungians, and again, there's so much of Jung I still haven't read. There's so much of Jung that still hasn't been published. So anything modern about Jung? How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I actually have a lot of feelings about that. Um, There's there's a danger here that Jungian psychology becomes a system. Let me try to give you a little story to illustrate. When I worked with Meyer in Zurich, he would not take Jungian psychology and apply it to what we were doing. For example, a woman had a dream of what we would call the negative animus. And rather than saying, here's what Jung said about the animus, therefore that's what this dream image means, he said, what does this dream image tell us about our understanding of the animus? The system was always in dialogue with experience. Mm. And I think we need to keep doing that, looking at people's experience and asking, does the psychology that Jung came up with still fit? Mostly I think it does. A couple of places, it, it, one place it doesn't, and another place, it's open-ended, for my taste. I think Jung would have restated the anatomist theory had he lived today. Mm-hmm. I'm sure of that. Well, I talked with his grandson about this, and he had the same feeling. So there, I think, we have to broaden how we understand those two archetypes. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, uh, which I, I mentioned at the beginning of the Toynbee book, Jung had, well, I don't put it this way, but this is the way I put it when I'm talking. Jung had one very big problem that nobody wants to talk about. And that is he only had one lifetime. Mm -hmm. He spent his entire life working on the individuation process inwardly. He knew it also works outwardly. And he said to von Franz, and I give that quote at the beginning of, uh, Of um, the Toynbee book, you guys work on that. Yeah. So, how this stuff, which is why I wrote the Toynbee book, one of the reasons, to try to see how can we show how the psyche relates to the material world as historical events. There's the issue then of how does it bear on synchronicity and quantum mechanics, Mm -hmm. because both of them realize the, the relativity of causality. How does it apply to disease? That's A. McGuire's work. Where well, some images, some diseases are themselves dream symbols. She, um, you know about her, Ann McGuire?
0: Yeah, you mentioned her on the second episode that uh, we did.
1: She, sadly deceased now, was a British dermatologist, and she found the cases of dermatological disturbance that were brought to her often carried a meaning of a previous disease of a particular organ that was dealt with physically, but had a meaning that was not touched. Mm-hmm. And the meaning transferred itself to the skin and called caused skin disease. So by probing the meaning of these organs, she had fantastic success resolving the dermatological disturbances by getting at the meaning of the earlier disease. So that's a completely fresh point of view. How does disease and the body carry symbolic significance? So the the buzzword in the Jungian field is matter and spirit. Matter meaning physical events, meaning the body, meaning historical events. Uh, How does this psyche relate to the outer world? There is a whole world waiting to be researched.
2: Yeah.
0: You had mentioned uh, some of her books, I think, on the last episode we did together. So I'll put links to those on the podcast page Uh, as well.
1: Seven Deadly Sins Mm -hmm. and uh, Skin Disease Mirror of the Soul.
0: Well, I, I don't know how to thank you, Gary. I appreciate you Spending so much time here with us today, and um, I hope that we'll get to talk again in the
1: future. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure at any time.
0: Please visit the website, speaking of Jung, that's J U N G dot com, for more information on everything that was discussed here today. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. The episodes are also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and google play or wherever you get your shows so with special thanks to scott milligan liz jefferson and daryl sharp at inner city books this is laura london and you've been listening to speaking of young